This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver the laggard. Should the provincial government force the city to move faster on housing development? Plus, are we prepared from LNG to electric cars? We look at the future of electricity demand in our province. And how did Vancouver become the second worst Canadian city for bedbugs? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. June of 2022, uh, all of you may remember, the city of Vancouver approved the final version of the Broadway plan. Uh, it was covered extensively on this show and all our talk shows here at CKNW. The plan itself would cover almost 500 blocks and aimed at about 30,000 new housing unit, units, accommodate 50,000 new residents and create more than 40,000 jobs. It, of course, would be built around the construction of the SkyTrain Millennium, uh, SkyTrain's uh, Millennium Line Broadway extension, which is set to open in 2025. Now, that plan was approved by uh, the previous uh, administration. It is, of course, put simply, the largest development in this, uh, in this city, uh, period, when you look at it in, in totality. Now, recently, council asked city staff to look at the pace of change. Essentially, what would be the appropriate number of applications and criteria for prioritizing applications. So essentially, how many buildings should we approve every single year? They approve the overall plan, uh, but they say they want to manage the rate of redevelopment in the area. Now, staff in this report, not approved yet, but in this report, recommended five annual projects be essentially allowed to move forward um, with uh, those application process. Now, there are other options, of course, 15 buildings a year. There was a 30 building limit and there was one with no limit. But should the city hall be putting any limits in the middle of a housing crisis. Now, Global News is speaking to our housing minister, Ravi Kilo, on this issue. They're going to have more at six o'clock, but I also wanted to talk to our uh, resident expert when it comes to development, Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant as well. Michael, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. I'm pleased to. I, I wanted to just lay down the basic facts in regards to this issue of the Broadway plan. What do you think of this whole idea of actually, you know, recommending maybe five projects move forward to be prioritized uh, because they don't, they're concerned about the rate of change? Well, I w- as I think uh, was noted in a story by Dan Fumano in the Vancouver Sun, uh, there was a telephone conversation between a number of developers and other housing experts and the city when the city made this announcement. And those developers who had either purchased sites or tied up sites with the expectation that they would be building primarily rental housing, when they heard the suggestion there might only be five projects approved, as I think Fumano noted in his story, mm-hmm. there was a great deal of tension on the call. I mean, I've, I must admit, and I was discussing it with a developer this morning who's looking at a site, I can't, ultimately, I'm convinced that the council will overrule the staff. It did seem odd that the staff would limit the number 
Um, and I wasn't sure whether it was because they just have so many projects to deal with as it is, or whether they just were concerned about the possibility that a lot of people in existing rental would be forced out. In regards to your uh, latter point, uh, don't we already have rental rules and regulations and advocates for people? I'm, I'm not saying that, that this doesn't happen. It does happen. But we have rules for that, do we not, to deal with some of this? We do. And in the, along the Broadway corridor, as the plan went through the political discussion, the council of the day kept layering, layering on more and more, uh, if you like, protections for existing renters to the point that uh, I did publicly say, had I known at the beginning of this whole planning process what ultimately might be decided, I wouldn't have got so upset because I question whether many of the developers would want to go ahead, particularly where there are buildings with a lot of existing renters. But there are quite a few other sites where there's no existing rental, where you could redevelop industrial or commercial sites. And again, it was surprising the city might, staff might want to suggest that just be limited to five projects. Um, are you uh, opposed to not having any limits? Like there should be no limits in this case? I mean, if that means hiring more staff, hire more staff, whatever the requirements are, that we shouldn't be putting any limits in regards to applications coming through. Um, I don't think you necessarily want to have a limit, but what you do need to try and decide is given all of the various rezoning applications throughout the city, how do you decide which one should proceed and which one shouldn't? And in fact, when I was asked by your producer to speak today, Jazz, I did send a note to the city just to ask them, how many rezoning applications are currently in the system and how many development permit applications? Because you can go online, but there's so many applications already in the system um, I didn't want to even try to count them all. I mean, there are literally hundreds of applications being processed right now. And uh, and that is an issue. And I did say to a colleague, I don't know if the city's staff proposal to limit was a reflection of their workload or a concern about, you know, existing renters. I suspect to some degree it has to be related to their workload because, uh, there, there are too many applications, as it is right now, as long as they continue to review them with the level of detail that they are. And my, my point would be they don't need to review them at, with the level of, uh, of detail that uh, has been the practice over the last few years. How transformative can this Broadway plan be? It could be very transformative. And I, as I've mentioned to you before, I'm not actually in favor of many of the proposals, particularly where you're going two or three blocks off of Broadway in an area which has a carpet of two and three story buildings, and all of a sudden you're allowed to put up a 14 story building at a density that's about three or four times the surrounding area. So I actually, as a planner and architect, uh, question some of, some of those decisions. But that being said, around the transit stations, I think it makes uh, excellent good sense to build higher density housing, and uh, and it should go ahead. And indeed, many of my colleagues in the planning profession, including a number of former city planners, said 
the city is making a mistake with this plan. What they should do is focus on the transit station areas, the immediate areas, and then take a bit more time and not push so hard on on the other areas. Now, maybe in practice that that might still happen, but right now the policy says you know that all of those areas can be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been hearing through the grapevine here in regards to Victoria, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. But can you see the city being added to the the the, the housing minister and the premier have talked about a naughty and nice list when it comes to cities yes. that um, are are pushing and building more housing, greater density. Um, could this plan, if 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 moving ahead with the five approvals a year only for the Broadway plan, I mean, could this land the city of Vancouver on the naughty list? I had a call from business in Vancouver, a journalist who was speculating as to what, who the eight to ten municipalities might well be on the naughty list. Uh-huh. And I did assume that Vancouver would be on that list, especially uh, not necessarily because the politicians didn't want to approve projects, uh, but because they just simply were taking so long. And uh, now I I think many people who've been listening to the new mayor, I mean, he goes around saying, you know, we don't have a building height crisis. We don't have a shadowing crisis. We have a housing crisis. In other words, he's trying to make it very clear that he, and I believe many of his colleagues on council, very much want to see housing uh, being developed and being built. But if you do speak to many of the developers active in Vancouver, they'll tell you they just don't understand why everything is taking so long. And Mm -hmm. it is taking long. It is. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for your time. As always, my pleasure. Let's talk uh, social media for for a moment. Uh, Recently, Xiao Chu, the CEO of TikTok, made his case to TikTok users directly. Uh, He stressed that the the steps TikTok has has been taking to protect U.S. uh, user data. Now, of course, U.S. lawmakers say TikTok is a national security threat, but evidence, some say, remains unclear. Uh, Mr. Chu has been making several media appearances because of the mounting scrutiny of TikTok. Uh, Mr. Chu is set to testify tomorrow for the first time before a congressional committee. There's obviously been talk that will there be an outright ban of of the app when it comes uh, to TikTok uh, in the United States. Um, Mr. Chu, as I said, spoke uh, to TikTok users directly uh, the other day. Take a listen to to his post. I'm super excited to announce that more than 150 million Americans are on TikTok. That's almost half of the U.S. coming to TikTok to connect, to create, to share, to learn, or just to have some fun. This includes 5 million businesses that use TikTok to reach the customers. And the majority of these are small and medium businesses. Now these numbers are amazing. And I'm so thankful to all of you and the 7,000 TikTok employees in the US who are helping us build this incredible community in America and around the world. Now this comes at a pivotal moment for us. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. 
So clearly, Mr. Chu there is trying to bolster uh, the uh, app's reputation uh, in the U.S. Uh, in fact, uh, he was supposed to hold a press conference today with dozens of social media creators uh, at the, on the steps of the Capitol. Many of them, of course, are being flown in by TikTok itself uh, to once again, it's a big PR campaign to make sure they stay and put some pressure on, on uh, lawmakers as well. Joining me now is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jazz. Uh, what do you make of all this? I mean, this seems like obviously a PR push to to convince lawmakers that the the, the app shouldn't be banned. Do you think uh, the CEO here, Ms. Chu, uh, is going to be successful in winning hearts and minds of Americans? I do have to say his enthusiasm is somewhat infectious. A, lot, a big contrast compared to what we saw with Mark Zuckerberg testifying <laughs> a couple of years ago. That's true. Uh, and, and, and much more engaging into that point of what TikTok creates in our, in our communities. And the thing is, is that TikTok very much does pride itself in the idea that you are able to not only create, distribute, but engage. And for that business angle, you know, saying there's 150 million users across the United States, that is half the population. You're looking at this small to medium-sized business that doesn't have to hire marketing companies. These are all, you know, commerce-driven conversations that very much kind of get these U.S. lawmakers kind of thinking about the things that their capital structure really does enjoy. But the reality here is that TikTok itself is no more a threat than any of the actual U.S major social media companies as well. Uh, any, any of the companies, Meta or Twitter, could be equally held accountable for some of the things that they're accusing TikTok of being responsible for here. But isn't TikTok simply because it is a app uh, and head offices in China and they can, you know, they can say there's a firewall, they can put all the, the, the security apparatus in and all these new programs, that I, that I don't doubt. But ultimately, anybody operating out of China is always, always answerable to the Chinese Communist Party. It doesn't matter who you are, they will bring you down or they will put pressure on you, whether they want user data, whether they feel you getting too big. In the case of Jack Ma, you saw the, the internet uh, mm-hmm. entrepreneur. So they've always yeah. never allowed anybody to get too big, number one, and anything that's viewed as a threat or anything that can be leveraged uh, in regards to national security, will, and they will do so. I mean, TikTok provides them with an incredible amount of aid data, number one. Number two, if you do want to, you know, uh, impact discourse in a nation like China, or sorry, in the U.S., you could, your algorithm could, could push certain storylines and push uh, and, and not put other stories before American consumers just based on that alone in regards to uh, being able to, uh, you know, uh, consume news. It can be dictated by an algorithm and ultimately that management is beholden to the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. And again, as Canadians, we somewhat forget the fact that this is not really our issue. It kind of becomes a secondary issue based on how we have concerns about China interfering in Canadian politics the same way. But the thing is, is that when you look at this conversation where it started, if we go back to the Trump administration and this idea of like, let's get rid of TikTok, let's make them break up, let's make SAP buy it so that it can operate in the United States uh, outside of what, uh, what the Chinese government has control over, um, the United States Patriot Act allows any company in the United States to kind of collect data, and then the American government to get access to it. So I have to ask myself as a traveler, if I'm going to the United States, what have I written on my Instagram account that might make it more difficult for me to experience traveling through the United States, the same as if I was doing it through China? 
in these spaces here where we get to this national security rhetoric, it is the question of whether or not TikTok should be on government devices, whether or not we should be limiting access to personal information as a whole, just as, as, a, as a mandated piece. And then when it comes down to the idea of misinformation or influences, what do we as users of these tools really value in media literacy? Do we only want people just looking at their TikTok feed and choosing how to vote, how to purchase, how to do anything? Or do we want people being able to enjoy the platform and then still make their own choices without those influences? Are social media apps, and not just TikTok, um, are they in the retreat? And what I mean by that is, number one, are people tiring of them uh, in regards to how much they've sort of impacted our lives? And B, because of the security issues that you brought up with Facebook specifically, Instagram, Twitter especially as well, um, is the whole concept of the social media app in retreat to a certain degree in regards to changing um, perceptions of people. Like I look at Facebook, I, I rarely go on. I see it once in a while. I use it as a news feed for me, different newspapers from around the world. But I don't really, um, I don't, I don't converse with my friends on it anymore, number one. Um, and, and I, and I can see that with a younger generation like my son's age who don't even look at something like Facebook. Is, are, are those kind of apps that, you know, came in early, are they now in retreat to a certain degree in regards to people's, uh, how people feel about the number one security issues and just saying, you know what, this is, this is not where I want to be. I think it depends on the user, Jazz. One of the most important pieces with these conversations is that we think about people as a whole and then ask whether A or B will occur. People operate in these silos on social media. And so what we see with, let's say, the extremist conversation mm-hmm. is that people now are in these echo chambers where their, their opinions are validated based on emboldenment and this idea that they can find other like-minded individuals who, in a public square, quote-unquote, might sit there and say, hey, I'm not going to say this aloud because I'm going to get some pushback. But in these closed social media spaces, we actually see increases of usership. So one of the things you have to keep in mind here is that, you know, when, when we talk about Snapchat, it's very uh, personal. It's not announcing to the entire world. It's your network of people. Whereas on Facebook, you're trying to kind of get a wider audience, your larger community. You really don't care what you write there in the comment sections. And that's what we see people do where all this vitriol and whatnot happens. But the interesting thing for me on TikTok is that TikTok is such a um, perverse algorithm that it does dial into a lot of things that people don't necessarily talk about in their everyday lives in the sense of what they search and what they engage with. But the concern for me is whether or not people have the media literacies to understand where something might become negative for them and whether that's political influence, whether that's their own ire towards the world or the way that they choose their time management on these apps. That right there becomes the concern for the person, not society as a whole. Do you have TikTok on your phone? I do, yeah. You do, eh? I took mine off. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know what, I'm, I'm critical of the Chinese government, uh, and we do a lot of sub- subjects. Not that I'm going to China, and I have I, lived there, so I did get a visa at one time as a journalist. I'm not sure if I'd get yeah. one now as a visitor, yeah, yeah. but but I said I, I just don't want it because I just think you open it up. Once that you open up that app for me, don't need it. And I don't need it. I don't need it in my life, so I took it off. Yeah. You know, Jazz, we all have things, WhatsApp or WeChat or whatever it is that we allow ourselves to kind of network with. And so whether it's one big company or the other, the question is, how much of our data do we feel comfortable letting people have? And you have to keep in mind here, there are third-party data brokers all around the world who buy our data from these companies, sell it to other companies. Everything that's happening in this TikTok conversation is happening every day in the United States. The question is, why isn't the same magnifying glass being placed in those spaces? Mm -hmm. Is it easier just to say it because it is a national security issue when it comes to, you know, geopolitical? upheavals. Yeah, well, lots to think about and talk about, that's for sure. Jesse, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jess. Let's talk about 
bed bugs. Bed bugs are small, oval, brown insects that feed on the blood of animals and humans. Now, adult bed bugs have flat bodies about the size of an apple seed. And after feeding, they swell and turn, it, turn into a reddish color. Now, uh, their flattened bodies make it possible for them to fit into tiny spaces about the width of a credit card. That means they can get just about anywhere so long as blood, there's blood to feed. Now, Vancouver, if you can believe, has been named the second worst city in, in the country for bed bugs, according to Orkin Canada Pest Control. Uh, the company says Vancouver uh, had the second highest number of commercial and residential bed bug treatments in 2022, up from third place in 2021. Uh, uh, out of the top 10 list, Toronto was the worst. We, of course, were number two. And behind us was Sudbury, Ontario. Joining me now is Trina Butler, branch manager in the Fraser Valley for Orkin Canada. Trina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So first, I, I guess the question to ask is, were you surprised at how high uh, Vancouver came out on this list? Uh, I mean, I, I'd like to believe we're pretty, you know, we take care of our homes, we're clean people. But when you said number two for bed bugs, I was a bit surprised. Did it surprise you? No, not at all. Um, in Vancouver, we have a dense population. Um, after the pandemic, we've increased travel. Um, and also, people like to move a lot in the summertime as well. So these numbers are from January 1st, 2022 to December 31st, 2022. So the summer months are when we will see the most. Um, and that's where a lot of our numbers do come from. Um, and then in regards to, um, you know, where we were finding them, um, mm-hmm. it's not just hotels we're finding them in due to travel. We're finding them in schools, healthcare facilities, daycares, libraries, Corner stores, campuses, buses, airplanes, movie theaters, really anywhere people are. Uh, they want us to be near them um, so they can feed on us. So what causes bed bugs? Nothing causes bed bugs. Um, bed bugs don't care if you're, you know, if you're rich, poor, what your social or economic status is. Again, they just want us humans. So what's happening is, is why they're spreading is because we're not doing our due diligence um, and, and checking those hotel rooms um, and storing our things properly. Um, but yet there's no cause. It's just what, what, how are they spreading is the question and how do we prevent that from happening? Now, as I said, they can bite you, but they're not dangerous in that if you get bit by a bed bug, uh, you know, there's a, a serious health risk. It is itchy. You're going to have to scratch your arm and all that. But it, there isn't, there's nothing sort of dangerous about being bit by a, being bit by a bed bug. No, not at all. Not at all. Bed bugs don't carry pathogens. Um, it, some people react. Some people don't. I myself, I react. I get really itchy, but I don't react until two days later. Some people react right away. Some after. Some don't react at all. Wow. Really irritating. So, itch if you can get it. So if I notice bed bugs and I called Orkin, how would you go about uh, to, a, let's say, a residential property to deal with, with a problem? Well, what we would do is we would come in and inspect first. We want to make sure that there are actually bed bugs there. Um, once the bed bugs are identified, we would do a treat with, treatment for you. We have many methods um, for treatment. We have heat, we have steam, we can also do a chemical treatment. That's, that's sort of up to you and based on the situation that we're dealing with. Um, the best um, way for us to check and see if you have bed bugs is actually our canine scent detection team. So Orkin Canada has a canine scent detection team. Our dogs go in and they can smell a live viable bed bug egg behind a baseboard. So we're almost, the, the dogs are detecting the, the bed bugs before we're even seeing them, which is an excellent, excellent tool. So hey, I've heard of bomb sniffing dogs. You have bed bug sniffing dogs. You actually send them into a, into a property. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, and so that 
that's really good for preventative maintenance as well. Or if you go traveling and you're afraid you may have brought them home, call us and we'll get the dog in and they'll, they'll clear your place or let you know that you have them. Is there anything you can do if you if you um, just notice one or two and maybe don't want to call uh, professionals in? What can people do themselves if they do notice that they that they have bed bugs? Well, we always recommend a professional come in because bed bugs are very, very tricky. Just because you're thinking you're seeing one or two, they're hiding in small cracks and crevices, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and also the eggs. So one female, she only needs to be inseminated once, and she can lay eggs for the rest of her life, which is almost up to two years. Um, so if, if you do decide that you want to try this on your own, what you're going to need to do is, is a steam treatment is good. You have to get a nice, um, heavy duty steamer. Um, and, and you can steam those areas, especially the mattress parts, like the, the head end of your bed. Um, and then also you want to get mattress encasements. So what these mattress encasements do is they encase the entire mattress and then it's bite proof, which means if there are bed bugs on that mattress, they're not able to bite you through that and feed on you and survive. And they also cannot escape. And then you want to put all your clothing and everything in a dryer on high heat for about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really, that's not ideal. I mean, if you do miss some, then the, the problem is just going to get worse. What's the worst case you've seen as a professional who's been called out to some of these uh, locations? Ooh. Uh, the worst place I've seen was um, in uh, East Vancouver. There was um, a place that I had been called into, and they had, this was where... Um, Folks were um, like a shelter, and the bed bugs were everywhere in the ceiling, in the walls, in the cracks and crevices, everywhere. Yeah, it was really, really, really incredible. But we managed to treat it and get it taken care of, and and it's 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 good now. So you clearly can't just ignore it, thinking it'll go away when when you hear stories like that. (laughs) No, you can't. And and residential too. I mean, some some residential ones that I've seen or my technicians have have seen. I mean, are incredible, especially if, if people are older or maybe they're, they're, they're embarrassed to let anyone know that they have this issue. They try and treat it on their own. Um, and, and then the situation just progressively gets worse. Um, it, it spreads to the neighbors. It spreads across the hall. They have friends over. Then their friends take them home. It really is something that needs to be dealt with um, by a professional and right away. Uh, beyond bed bugs, how is, what, is, what are the, some of the challenges or if, have there been any challenges for the industry during COVID? I'm, I'm there was obviously a desire to uh, sanitize and clean surfaces and all those things. Was there, uh, did your industry see changes in in regards to just what customers were looking for or, or challenges that they had in their own home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just bed bugs. A, a lot of people were hesitant to call in and get treatments, again, because of, of COVID, you didn't want to make contact. Um, and also, if I could touch on rodents, I mean, people mm-hmm. were eating from home more, they were having more takeout containers, more takeout food, more garbage was collecting, and then we saw an increase in rodents during that time as well. So there were definitely challenges during COVID, yes. Have we gotten better? I mean, is the problems of rodents and ants, and is it just, is, is it getting worse because we're living in a a growing city, greater density, more people, um, or, or is it something that just, it, you know, it isn't a problem that's growing significantly, or do you see more and more need for people like yourselves? It, there, there will always be a need for pest control. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it, after the pandemic, now that travel again is, has increased, we're, we're seeing more and more bed bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the rodents as well, um, we now are using first-generation um, rodenticides. We're in Vancouver, we're not using second-generation rodenticides, which is in a completely different story. Um, 
but um, it, it is it is challenging um, in, in that regard for sure. What do you mean that? And what do you mean by that? Is it in regards to how you capture or how you uh, kill um, rodents? Exactly. Yes. I see. So it's yes. it's it's more. Uh, I, I guess uh, it, it's. It, it's it's not what it was in the past in regards to uh, is certainly in a, in, a, in a much better more humane way to deal with some of these rodents. Exactly, yeah, it is a more humane way, and also um, it's it's preventing secondary poisoning um, for for other wildlife. Well, thank you so much for your time, Trina. Uh, the list uh, is one I hope we're not on next year, but you never know. But I really appreciate talking to you about bed bugs today. Thank you so much. You got it for having me. Let's talk about electricity. Now, you, if you ask yourself, um, you know, I, I, if you if you think about the fact that in this city you see so many EVs today, electric vehicles, and what if we all switch to electric vehicles? Well, there's different uh, views, but you know, one that I've heard is that you probably need two new sightsee dams, and that's the dam that we're building up in the northeast corner of our province, and I think the costs have now ballooned to $24 billion, that's with a B, uh, but that speaks to the need for electricity in this province. Add to the fact, population growth, we're going to add another million people to Metro Vancouver's population by 2050. Uh, add to that the growth of large-scale LNG plants, potentially. We we heard of the announcement uh, just recently of the Cedar LNG plant moving forward. Now, that's a small plant, but it is going to be Run, or the desire is to have it run on electric power to cut back on emissions. Think about the needs of our mining industry or even our forest industry. We also have um, uh, factories or at least warehouses in other parts of British Columbia, smaller communities, where they want to set up massive, massive warehouses just for Bitcoin mining as well. So you can see there's a tremendous need for our clean electricity. In fact, BC Hydro is part of all of that. It was uh, created in 1962 and it is a backbone uh, of our electric system here uh, in this province. and In fact, between 1960s and 1980s, BC Hydro completed six large hydroelectric generating projects. So, And we, because of those decisions, have been very fortunate. We have extra power than we actually need. We sell some of that power to Washington State, to California. But where does the system go from here? And what will we be needing to do? Uh, we've been very fortunate because of past decisions, but when you look at the LNG industry, and as I said, when you look at EVs, when you look at a growing population, how do you power not only these LNG plants, but also power the rest of this province as well? Well, joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, to talk a little about, about uh, BC Hydro and, of course, our future electric needs. Richard, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I've sort of laid out some of the challenges before us and the opportunities as well. Uh, in regards to the government and BC Hydro, uh, is BC Hydro, from what you're hearing, up to the task right now and, and ready and prepared to deal with some of the challenges that are there? Hydro is acutely aware of the challenges and they are grappling through those challenges now. But as you mentioned, we are quickly running out of this energy that we have accounted for. So we built the Site C Dam. It took uh, political willpower from John Horgan to continue along with that project. And we have already accounted for all of that future power. It's going to power about 1.3 million electric vehicles on the roadway. 
that won't cover off the number of cars that we're going to have on our roadways. So all of that power is accounted for. And then the other factor, as you mentioned, is how do LNG facilities get powered? We know the Premier is going all in on electrification. This is the target here is to uh, clean our energy supply, but there's just uh, not enough future electricity there to do all of that. So Hydro is acutely aware. There are independent power producers that generate about 20% of the power in this province. They are working through this as well. But I think the reality is we need to start having a conversation about large-scale production, and the Premier hasn't been asked it yet. But I would be curious to hear his answer when he's asked about whether there needs to be another South Sea Dam. It, it took a lot of political capital to get through that first one. I'm not sure the political capital exists just to get through another South Sea Dam, but we have the, the ability to produce hydroelectric power in this province. Do we have the will to build more dams? I, I'm not so sure. So it's going to be a struggle for hydro to meet the massive demands that we have. And just to confirm uh, for our audience, Site C originally, I think it was 6 to $8 billion. That was the budget. We're up to $24 billion for that project. So I don't know, I'm not, I don't know how you sell that, uh, something like that again, uh, because it took years and years for that to actually get to the point where we actually built it. Yeah, and the challenge is the environmental disruption that comes with it. And under the new standards we have now in the province, even getting it through an environmental assessment would be hugely challenging. Working with First Nations communities, uh, having that dialogue and conversation. Uh, I think uh, many people saw the Site C project as bypassing some of those important steps around consultation, and I can't imagine we'd get through it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to the LNG industry, uh, of course, yeah. the natural gases in the in the northeast uh, portion of our province, uh, and then, of course, the, the plants themselves will be uh, on our northwest uh, but the Pacific Northwest of our province, uh, in the Kitimat area, roughly. Um, how do we get electricity to that portion of our province? I mean, is is the will there to build the the uh, the the line? That, to my understanding, that has to come up all the way from Prince George to be built that way, but it's expensive. Yeah, this is one of those questions that Ellis Ross has been asking for a decade plus. You know, he's the MLA that represents the community, a BC Liberal. He was the highest chief counsellor. And there's an agreement signed between LNG Canada and BC Hydro to get that electricity through lines to Kitimats. But you described it. It's challenging. There are hurdles to clear to get that. But I spoke to Ellis Ross last week uh, about these LNG projects, and he's excited to see it. But he it was almost exasperated to talk about the fact that we still don't have that network in place with hydro to get it there. The will is there from hydro. Just seemingly there are hurdles and challenges in the way just physically to get that uh, the kit amount is needed uh, to power these LNG facilities. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We're focusing on BC hydro, but it is the broader conversation. How do we power this province? What's the right energy to use moving forward? Everybody, of course, is probably talking, but if they already don't own, own an EV, want to own an EV in the future, add that a million new people probably expected in, in uh, Vancouver by 2050. We've got LNG plants that want to electrify mining and forestry continues, of course, and we even have, you know, warehouses and the Bitcoin industry wanting to expand in this province. We actually have to had to put a moratorium on that as well. So a huge energy demand moving forward. How do we power this province? And I know a lot of you out there <laughs> have opinions on this as well. Uh, give me a call on the open line, 604-280-9898. Richard Zussman is our guest. Let's go to Laura in Vancouver. Hi, Laura. Hi, hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I said, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Go ahead. <laughs> Wonderful. I just wanted to point out and ask, uh, there's a fantastic... Ooh. Oh, it's just the background music, sorry. 
Um, there's a fantastic incinerator in Burnaby. Um, as far as I know, it's the only one we have in the province. And I think I just looked it up because I was curious. It puts out enough energy for 16,000 homes a year, they say on their website. Wow. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's definitely two birds, one stone. I'm sure they, you know, make use of a whole bunch of material. I've gone there for school projects and things, and it doesn't smell. It burns clean. It's phenomenal. And I really wish we had more like that. I'm curious to your guests if we've looked into that at all, if it's on the docket or interest at all to anyone looking at these problems moving forward. Laura, thanks for your call. Uh, right now, I mean, it's part of the energy transition is we don't know all the technologies that are there and more that are emerging along the way. The transition is going to take time. And I guess this is part of this as well. They are doing this in Burnaby. But to my understanding is what you said, the, the premier's focus at right now seems to be on electrification. Yeah, and I think there's a diversity plan here as well. And I'm sorry about the background noise. I think it's a little bit better now. But, you know, this Burnaby project is interesting, uh, but it does not meet the demand that we were looking at. So hot water for 18,000 residents, about uh, power for 500,000 square feet of offices, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that's all good news around a project like this, but it is not the sort of scale the province needs for its electrification. And that's about making these decisions and prioritizing where we find the energy. And, you know, you mentioned there was a time where we were an energy seller. Uh, there will be conversations about whether we start buying energy from other places, especially south of the border. But everybody, everybody is hitting these uh, supply issues in terms of clean energy. There's just not enough at this point being produced. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to Jeff in Vancouver. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I just happened to hear your radio uh, broadcast as I'm coming back from the airport. And I've been working for 21 years now in developing some historic dams in northwest BC that formerly served the mining industry. Hmm. Our, our largest dam is the Antioch's Dam, which um, a ghost town that's long since been forgotten. It did have 3,000 people, and was this structure was the largest concrete dam in Canada until the mid-40s. And we have a project there that's fully permitted, all ready to go, shovel-ready, and we've been unable to even get a sniff at a contract with BC Hydro. Our partners are the Nishka First Nation, mm -hmm. who I've been working with steadfastly for 20 years. Um, oh, Jeff, I think we lost you there. Thank you for your call. I think we got the gist of, of, of your uh, comments there. I would think uh, post-Gordon Campbell, who was push pushing the independent power uh, projects, uh, I I'm going to assume uh, the NDP is not interested in going there. No, and this is not something we saw a lot of success with in the tail end of Campbell's administration. I don't expect that independent power projects is part of the long-term strategies. You know, we can pick away at the edges here, and I think ideas are important, you yeah. know, conversations around how we can produce our energy, but we're talking large scales, which, as you, you said it, nuclear, are we talking more dams? Are we talking, you know, new types of renewables that we're always trying to innovate with? But our timelines are coming fast. Like we're talking about needing this sort of energy by the late 2020s, early 2030s. That's less than a decade away. And producing this power, creating the infrastructure to do it, takes time and money. And we need to get to that now because, you know, as you and I have discussed, we are we are hitting a point where we're not going to have 
the type of energy we need to run our grid. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Scott in Coquitlam. Hi, Scott. Hey, Jazz. Uh, I had to chuckle right before uh, this segment where uh, there's a big ad by oil and gas. Go, <laughs> go figure. we got to pay the bills, though. <laughs> Right, Scott. So, yeah, but you're right. Yeah, yeah, but yes, it's hey, do. look, it's an industry that can uh, that costs uh, when you buy a liter of, uh, of of gasoline, it's cheaper than a can of pop. That's how efficient it is at this point, and that's part of the challenge of this energy transition to get whatever new energy we're going to use, or types of energy and cleaner energy, to get it to the point where it can uh, compete with a dollar seventy five a liter gasoline. Okay, well, my point is, is mm-hmm. why are we looking more at solar? I just did a quick uh, quick Google mm-hmm. on solar panels. Uh, I watch these um, uh, off-the-grid shows all the time, and I think they're fantastic. How many solar panels could we buy for several billion dollars? Because the government doesn't have problems throwing billions of dollars at gigantic projects that take decades in environmental studies. When I could pick up a 35-watt 12-volt poly solar panel from Best Buy for $48.51, and for uh, $8 more, they'll deliver it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, How many solar panels could we stick on the tops of our houses and take pressure off the grid? Yeah, I think that's a legitimate issue. I mean, I know there are many, re- many residents now, uh, they're using that technology. You see it on farms as well. Uh, Richard, I mean, I remember Andrew Weaver in the legislature bringing up this issue and other technologies that we should be, be looking at. But I think it goes back to your core issue, which is we need it now and it needs to be consistent and it needs to be reliable. And we'd flick on a switch, it better be there. I'm not saying solar yeah. doesn't do that, um, but I, 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 don't, I don't know how to cl- really answer that question. I mean, is it just a climate issue or is it just a question more so for us that it, it's not going to be consistent? So part of it is cost. So, you know, we could have subsidies, but it's, you know, about ten dollars to $20,000 to set up panels for a home. That's a high upfront cost. Uh, it becomes more complex when we start talking about uh, large housing developments, condominiums, apartment buildings. And I know Andrew Weaver, if he's listening, will be rolling his eyes at me. But the reality is, you know, have you looked outside in Vancouver and Victoria in October, November, December, <laughs> January, February? Yeah. We don't produce a whole lot of sunlight uh, in this province because of the cloud cover. And I know it's a small factor. And uh, Weaver would laugh at me and, and say we can still generate some solar during that period of time, but it's not our greatest asset. So individual solar panels can help fuel homes, but there's high cost to it, and it doesn't hit the sort of scale uh, that we're looking for as, as we start talking about full electrification of the grid. The reality is petroleum products will still be a part of our future for a long, long time. We are still going to rely on non-renewable resources, uh, but... Uh, it's about taking that next step as we try to hit those. Platforms. Hey, the future's coming fast, and whether it's uh, <laughs> you know whether it's LNG, whether it's uh, solar, whether yeah. it's hydrogen, uh, whether it's other things, it's a fascinating conversation. We'll have you on again. I do want to talk about this issue? A lot of callers out there. Sorry, I couldn't get to all your calls. Please call our buzz line six zero four three three one two eight nine nine. Richard, thank you. My pleasure. Two hours ago, our next guest published a story uh, that uh, once again highlights the challenge this country has when it comes to um, foreign influence. Uh, Sam Cooper uh, published a story that is titled "The Liberal Member of Parliament Han Dong, which is, uh, who is from Ontario, secretly advised a Chinese diplomat in 2021 to delay freeing the two Michaels. Sam Cooper, of course, is a national online investigative journalist for Global News, and he joins us now. Th- Sam, thank you for your time today. 
Thanks, Jess. So walk me through, in regards to the specifics of your story, in this case, uh, where it is alleged that the uh, Liberal Member of Parliament Handong uh, uh, advised the Chinese diplomat back in 2021 uh, to delay freeing the two Michaels. Walk me through uh, how it happened and, and what your sort of story focuses upon. The focus of the story is that uh, national security sources informed me of an alleged conversation in February 2021 that is a thesis investigation in, into a conversation with MP Don and China's Consul General in Toronto. Uh, the allegations of uh, what was learned in the thesis investigation are that MP Han Don had a lengthy conversation, initiated the conversation with the Consul General uh, Han Tao. And uh, in this conversation, allegedly, Mr. Don uh, was talking about uh, Canadians' perceptions of China's uh, foreign policy, uh, China's problematic uh, reputation in Canada with regards to human rights abuses. And uh, the assessment of CSIS investigators was that this was a political discussion. Also, ultimately, MP Don brought up the, the sensitive case of the Michaels uh, imprisoned in China. As you recall at that time, this is... Uh, uh, over two years into their detention, they were uh, in secret jails. They had not come to trial. Mm -hmm. The allegations here are serious. Uh, I was informed that CSIS learned, Mr. Don said, that uh, China should not release the Michaels at that time because this would uh, affirm the Conservative Party's uh, political stance at the time. And uh, yet... Mr. Don allegedly advised that China needed to show uh, some progress on the case. And so this is the information I have. Uh, it, it, it raises, of course, many, many questions. And we need to say right now that Mr. Don yesterday uh, re returned uh, a response to my questions and confirmed that he did have a call in February 2021 with Consul General Han Don. He disputes that he initiated the conversation he strongly denies that he advised that uh, China should uh, hold off on releasing the Michaels at that time. So that uh, that's the, the nutshell and uh, some of the serious mm -hmm. allegations. Another key point, we went to the prime minister's office mm -hmm. and said our sources indicate CSIS was questioning uh, whether Mr. Don could have been acting as a back-channel negotiator for the Liberal government. The prime minister's office uh, strongly denied that Mr. Don was ever a back-channel negotiator. In fact, they said they had never heard of this conversation until I questioned them on it this week. So uh, very interesting or uh, perhaps material to, to further questions. They appear to be uh, in the dark about this call. And uh, so that that is a, a lot of the story to this point. Uh, based on just the information that is in your story and what you've articulated here, the drumbeat towards a national uh, inquiry of some sort into the broader issue of foreign influence, one would uh, say the drumbeat's going to grow louder based on this information coming out. That's my read on uh, early reaction to the story online. 
uh, I, I do believe that this will come up in in the, the debates in the House in, mm-hmm. in Ottawa, that is in Parliament, and also questions to party leaders. You're right. There's right now a division between the parties, uh, whether, uh, you know, the Conservatives, of course, are pushing all out for an inquiry focused on China. Uh, the NDP wants it to be broader. Uh, the Liberal Party, as you know, the Prime Minister has asked for a special rapporteur to, to look at the situation first. But I do think you're right. The, this, will, this will raise the public interest and the public's interest in these stories uh, and, and whether, you know, one person, an eminent Canadian such as David Johnson, could get close to getting to the bottom of some of these allegations. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday, uh, Sam, we had uh, Kareem Alam on the show. Mr. Alam is a former chief of staff to Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim, the present mayor. Uh, he also ran uh, the campaign for ABC Vancouver in Vancouver here, uh, which is the municipal party. He also ran Kevin Falcon's uh, leadership campaign uh, last year as well. And uh, he has run Erin O'Toole's BC campaign when he ran for leadership. So Mr. Alam has been in and around municipal, provincial and federal politics for a very long time. And he was on the show talking about foreign interference and what we need to do. And I just want to play one clip for you because, you know, you, you've followed this story for a very long time. He was talking about the need for higher level of security when it comes to background checks, of those that work in government, not just elected officials like like Mr. Dong, but bureaucrats as well at provincial and municipal level. I just want, to hear, want you to hear this, uh, this uh, comment okay. that he made. Take a listen. But this isn't just about meddling in elections. This is about meddling in the day-to-day responsibilities of government. For example, on November 7th, Ken Sim and the entire council were sworn in. They took an oath of office. It's the bare minimum standard for security clearance uh, or security clearing that you, that, 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 that you can do. On that same day, I became his chief of staff. No one did a criminal background check on me. No one did a foreign interference check on me. I didn't have to submit any uh, conflict of interest papers that the councillors and the mayor did, but yet I have access to all the most sensitive documents the city has and I get to participate in all the in-camera meetings. And that goes the same for the entire civil service in the city of Vancouver and the entire civil servants in the province of British Columbia. And that should be a concern. There needs to be a mechanism where provincial and municipal governments and political parties can receive uh, information that are relevant to protecting our sovereignty. Uh, and I want to play this to you because, well, it's not the issue of Mr. Dong and, and elected officials, but it does speak to the broader issue that this our entire country has been sleepwalking uh, on this issue, not really paying much attention to it, not dealing with the issues of provincial, municipal or national security. And I think Mr. Alam highlighted something that's really important on top of what you've uh, released today in your story is that we've got to do better when it comes to protecting uh, our sovereignty and our security. Well, uh, Jazz, I fully agree with uh, with the comments uh, from the official and the way that you set them up. The thoughts going through my, my mind were that I've done the research and the reporting that shows that people that, uh, that list themselves openly as members of what we've been reporting is the United Front Work Department, uh, mm-hmm. a foreign influence arm of the Chinese Communist Party, have led campaigns of BC politicians 
Ontario politicians. Uh, it looks like a Montreal politician is now being tied to this uh, 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 influence arm. And the the official is exactly right. I know of allegations of police officers uh, connected to the United Front. And remember, we're, we're looking at broader allegations of so-called Chinese police stations, mm-hmm. uh, where, where these, uh, the, the, uh, the people that my reporting alleges are tied to clandestine cash transfers into Canada's political system in Toronto are the same people in, uh, in networks in Toronto, in Vancouver, that I can tell you, Jazz, are being questioned by RCMP's national security units for alleged involvement in Chinese police stations, and they are involved in political campaigning and donations. So uh, I could not agree any more with what that official just said about the need for checks from from federal government down to municipal levels, all levels of government. There's there are major gaps. Sam, thank you for your time today. Always enjoy our conversation. Look forward to having you on, and, and um, I must say, great work today. Thanks, Jess. Well, let's revisit our top story. Uh, you're all aware, of course, of the Broadway plan. It was approved in June of 2022. The plan, of course, covers almost 500 blocks and aims to add about 30,000 new housing units to accommodate 50,000 new residents. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, city staff were asked by council to, to look at uh, the pace of change uh, in regards to that particular uh, corridor. Uh, now, staff came back and said, look, p- approve basically five annual projects, so it's five high-rises, essentially. There are other options, of course, 15 buildings, perhaps 30 buildings. Uh, we had uh, Michael Geller on earlier today in this show, and should there be any limits in the middle of a housing crisis? Uh, Mr. Geller and I talked about that issue. We took some calls as well, but I wanted to hear from our housing ministry. It was good enough to uh, give us some time today. Ravi Kalon is BC's Minister of Housing. He's got a lot on his plate, and he joins us now. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jess. Thanks a lot for having me. So first of all, this issue of five approvals potentially, and like I said, this has not been approved. This is just a report before City Hall, and I think they're looking at it next week. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I appreciate staff for doing uh, what they think is, or advancing ideas that they think are appropriate. But, you know, I think that the, the whole discussion fails to recognize that we're in a housing crisis. I mean, there was three years plus of deliberation, finally a plan approved by council, one of the strongest renter protection plans that I'm aware of in North America. Uh, And, you know, quite frankly, uh, I think it's time to get to work. Uh, And so that's what I've been urging to mayor and council is to uh, thank the the staff for their advice, but to to proceed at the pace that the the market is ready to proceed at and and get these projects going. Uh, So you don't buy the whole bit about the the relocation that may come for some residents. Some people may have to move because of this construction. You, You fundamentally believe the rental protection is there. Well, you know, if they didn't have uh, renter protections put into the planning, uh, perhaps I I would say that there's more work to need to be done. But in this case, they've got the strongest protections that I've seen in any jurisdiction. Uh, And so, you know, there may be some displacement, but, you know, we have uh, people who cannot find housing. It's putting downward pressure on uh, all of our society. We've got people living in encampments. All of this is interconnected. And, and so, you know, I, I've been urging staff, you know, we've done this. We've had the conversations. We've already agreed on a path forward. And I'm just saying to mayor and council, you know, we've got that. Let, let's move forward and let's get going. Uh, if there's projects that are ready to go uh, that have gone through the process, let them build. 
Uh, delaying even longer won't help the housing crisis. It won't help the cost of those projects. And in the end, no one wins. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious. If they were to go ahead with this plan, uh, do they guarantee they're going to be on the nice and naughty list, the naughty list specifically, which uh, I think the government w- will be releasing sometime in May or June? Uh, would this put them on the naughty list? Well, well, certainly uh, I, I'm heartened because the conversations I've had with uh, Mayor Ken Sims has been uh, positive. Uh, he understands that we're in a housing crisis. He's made clear to me that he wants to see housing get built. And so I don't think that it'll get to that point. But you're right, Jazz. We have passed the Housing Supply Act uh, last year. The Premier passed that. And with that gives us the ability to choose eight to ten communities uh, where, um, you know, we can have housing targets in place. And if they don't reach those housing targets, the province has the ability to step in. And certainly not hoping that we're able, you know, that we're needing to do that. Uh, but we may have to do that, and that's why we put those tools in place. And, and I'm, I'm curious, it is going to be May or June when the list comes out in regards to municipalities that are not keeping up or not meeting the, the targets that they need to meet for housing? That's correct. We're, we're aiming for this spring to have the communities uh, clearly uh, laid out so that they know what they ex- they can expect, and then certainly the public can know what we can expect. But it's going to be uh, a two-track. One track is communities that have the ability to bring on more growth and also some communities who have hidden from growth and you know i've said this a million times and i'll say it again it doesn't matter if you're vancouver or anmore everyone has a role to play in this housing crisis everyone has to help us get more housing approved and we can't relitigate debates that we've already had Uh, you know in this case we've gone through the process it's been approved let's just get on with it and get to work uh when will your housing plan come out we're expecting it to come out very soon uh, in the in the coming month. Uh, very excited. Uh, we've been a lot of work been put in. Uh, we've been engaging with stakeholders, and again, it will reflect the urgency that Premier Evie has put on housing. Uh, but it also will reflect the urgency that we're facing in communities uh, throughout the province. Minister, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Josh. Stay oh. safe. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.